Hey, you're listening to Hear This Idea. So for the next few months, Luca and I are making artificial intelligence a big focus of the podcast. Now, what's the general motivation for focusing on AI if you're looking for opportunities to have a big positive impact? Well, you might believe two things. First, you might think that AI is likely to become transformatively powerful within our lifetimes. That means maybe it could cause a transition comparable to something like the agricultural or industrial revolution. And second, you might think that transformative AI could result in catastrophe unless we're very careful about how it gets implemented. This episode is about giving some background on the first of those two claims. Specifically, Luca and I wanted to hear more about trends in AI so far and how we might begin to extrapolate them forward. So we reached out to Epoch, which is a group of researchers investigating and forecasting the development of advanced AI. I've been hugely impressed with Epoch's output so far. Uh, In case you need convincing, I can say just this week, their report on compute trends was the first citation in Google's recent announcement about its new AI service called Bard. Now in particular, I spoke to Jaime Sevilla, who is now Epoch's director. Now you might remember Jaime all the way back from episode 13, where we talked about cultural persistence and quantum computing. But in this conversation, Jaime gave just a really nice overview of Epoch's results so far. We went over big picture trends in the amount of computes used in top ML models, whether it's soon going to be hard to find more training data, trends in algorithmic efficiency and GPU costs, and how performance has scaled historically with those different inputs. Uh, And we also chatted about how much text data humans are trained on and AI art. Now, apologies for the spotty audio in this one. We actually recorded this in Mexico City and I managed to only get one mic set up. So you'll have to bear with my phone's mic on my questions, I'm afraid. Also, just a note that if you'd like to skip to sections which stand out, then you can use the chapter markers. Okay, without further ado, here's the episode. All right, Henry Sevilla, you are our first ever repeat guest. So special thanks for coming on for the second time. Thank you for inviting me. Cool. So we are going to talk about trends in machine learning. But first question we ask everyone, is there a particular problem that you're currently stuck on? So the problem that I'm currently trying to answer is how we can combine uh, traditional macroeconomic models of growth with like models of AI timelines to try to understand better what those tell us about how the economy is going to be progressively automated in the next few decades. Last time we spoke, you were, uh, actually, where were you working when we spoke last time? So I was working on technological forecasting. Okay. All right. Nice. And now, yeah, now we're talking about forecasting um, ML specifically, and specifically, specifically at an organization called Epoch. Um, You're the director of Epoch. Can you say a bit about what Epoch does and why it exists? So Epoch is a research organization that is trying to figure out what is going to happen with artificial intelligence. Okay. Uh, currently, we live in an in an exciting era, I will say. Like we have seen lots of advances in artificial intelligence, in text generation, in image generation, in pro- in protein generation, like many other areas that are uh, that are really interesting. And uh, this raises an important question about like what are going to be the long-term consequences of these advances for society. We want to give an empirical footing to uh, the, in- the inquiry of, the, uh, of this question. 
We're trying to gather data about artificial intelligence in the last few decades and build some models that allow us to extrapolate these trends into the future. Got it. Okay, so in my head, I guess there are um, organizations which work on um, AI alignment, making sure AI is safe when it becomes um, powerful enough to be very dangerous, potentially. I guess there are also orgs which work on questions around governing powerful AI. Epoch is focused on forecasting how AI could play out from now to when it becomes especially transformative. Is that roughly right? Yeah, that seems cool. right. And then quickly, what's the story behind Epoch? How did it come to be? So it came in a long, in a long uh, way. So while I was doing my PhD, I had uh, many side projects, uh, different like small uh, investigations into different aspects that have to do with like my bigger program about like technological forecasting. And one of them had to do with like AI. We were trying to gather data on like milestone machine learning systems and trying to study like how these machine learning systems had become bigger over time, like how they were consuming more compute uh, over time. This uh, effort started growing. Uh, we got like a few uh, publications out there. Uh, people uh, people started uh, recognizing or labor. Other people wanted to join and contribute uh, to the effort. And then uh, later, uh, later I received like an offer to uh, help uh, uh, the Open Philanthropy Project with uh, developing their own models of artificial intelligence, which uh, I, which I did uh, to, uh, together with also uh, an. While doing that, they also provided with me some funding so I could pursue the side projects that I, that, uh, that I was involved in. Okay, nice. All right, so I guess most of the episode we're going to be talking about um, investigating trends in machine learning. I guess a question that I should just ask um, at the beginning, though, is what are we talking about when we're talking about machine learning? What is this ML thing? Yeah, so machine learning is a field of research that is trying to develop uh, a programs that uh, out, uh, automatically adapt to like new tasks and like are able to come to uh, perform this really uh, uh, this really complicated functions without the programmers having to explicitly program them to do so. Maybe one question is presumably it's useful to break down the big question of. How do we think about progress in machine learning into questions about different factors which um, combine to give you an answer? Um, so the question is, yeah, what are those factors? What, what are these um, different elements that add up to progress in ML? So in the last few decades in machine learning, we have learned about a few surprising regularities about like how certain uh, certain inputs to machine learning systems like strongly determine are strongly correlated uh, with the performance that these systems are able to achieve. The two chief components that go into this recipe are like the amount of compute that is used to train these, these machine learning models, the amount of operations that are used to train them, and second, the amount of data that goes into, the, into these models and the quality of, of this data. A third, a third component that is related to this too is like how our understanding of like how to com how to combine like compute and data evolves over time, which I, is what I will call like algorithmic improvements. So these will be the three components that I would point to. Got it. So compute, something like how many operations can you can you do? Um, data, how much? How many ones and zeros can you actually work with and learn from? And then algorithms is like, what kind of clever new rules can we come up with to do things with those ones and zeros with all that compute? 
Yeah, I mean, maybe one question is how do these things um, fit together to give you an answer about progress in machine learning? So maybe they, they add together, maybe they multiply, maybe one is a bottleneck and then it becomes unblocked. I guess historically, what has been the story of how these three factors have, have kind of combined? So the exact way in which uh, they combine, uh, it's a bit complicated, but also I'm going to give a bit of a simplification. But uh, roughly, historically, it has turned out that the two main drivers uh, of progress have been the scaling of compute and like these algorithmic improvements. And I will say that they are like 50-50. This is like a figure that we derived from a recent investigation that my colleague, uh, my colleagues, Tamai, uh, Basiroglu, and Eger deal uh, conducted. You didn't mention data there. Was that just because there's always been enough data that hasn't really been a, a bottleneck until recently? Very much so. Uh, up until this point, like data has been collected basically for people in their free time building like really giant data sets. There haven't been, it hasn't been like a bottleneck in the same way that the other two have been. Got it, got it. Okay, so let's talk about compute trends first. And specifically, there's paper that um, you and some colleagues published late last year. It's called Compute Trends Across Three Eras of Machine Learning. Um, first question is just what, what did you set out to to know through that paper, what questions were you trying to answer? So it was more of an exploratory paper in the sense that we didn't have like any pre-specified questions in our mind, but rather we had this general notion of like compute is a really important factor for determining progress in machine learning. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to give people like a better understanding of like what the trend had been historically on it, uh, also trying to inform like how it might go on in the future. Uh, one thing that we were also particularly interested in understanding is like any discontinuities that we could observe in these trends, because those will uh, point to uh, changes in the field that will help us uh, better understand like uh, what researchers have, uh, how a researchers' perception of machine learning has changed in the last few decades. Got it. And I guess at a high level, you were trying to figure out the amount of compute used by a bunch of different ML projects and models over time, um, starting from the very first models. And then you're trying to figure out what kinds of trends they they paint. Um, yeah, maybe it's a silly question, but like, how do you figure out how much compute a particular model uses? That's an excellent question. We had to develop uh, uh, our own methodology to try to, underst uh, to understand this better. There was some preliminary work by uh, OpenAI on an AI and compute report that they released on their website, where like they already outlined uh, two methods to try to estimate the amount of compute that goes into the, into that model. We closely examined those methods and like concluded that they are like basically sound and in practice is what uh, we ended up uh, what we ended up using. Uh, the, the two main ways in which like you determine compute, like one of them is you just look at the hardware that was used. Like usually in those papers, uh, it is reported the kind of hardware that was used to train the models and like the amount of time that this hardware was run for. So you can just do the knife uh, calculation of like saying, you know, yep. this hardware is so powerful, multiply it by the training time, that's roughly the amount of compute. Got it. And then the second one is uh, you just uh, uh, you just count manually like the amount of operations in the, in the model where like you just look at the architecture, you figure out like, all right, how long will it take to process like one data point? And then you multiply that by the amount of data points that uh, the, the machine learning models has seen. Okay. Rough. Got it. And can you use the both methods for the same model? And do you get like a roughly similar answer just to kind of check that it's going more? 
you can. And in fact, for like a subset of our data, that is exactly what we did so that we could get uh, certainty that the models, the models that we're using were concordant. Awesome. Okay, so that was the methodology for this paper. Natural question is, what did you find? You're looking at trends in compute over time and what kind of picture do you see? So there were three main results that we gleaned from this paper. The first one has to do with the historical rate at which, uh, of compute, which has grown at a rate of like doubling every 20 months or so. Uh, this corresponds roughly to Moore's law. So this indicates that up until 2010, what was happening is that uh, researchers, developers were not investing more money into running these machine learning systems, but rather they were just getting more powerful computes, uh, computers. Uh, which allowed them to train, like, uh, for uh, to put more uh, more compute into these machine learning systems. Can you remind me, by the way, what exactly Moore's law says? So, like, uh, roughly, like um, Moore's law is uh, is an, an empirical is like an empirical observation that, like, it's stated in like a few different ways. The traditional way has to do with like the size of transistors uh, in like computers in processors, saying that it halves uh, every uh, it, the amount of transistors that go into a processor like double, like every twenty months or so. And then there is like analogous laws for like other types of like uh, for other types of processors like GPUs. Got it. And the idea is that something like the number of transistors is a pretty good proxy for how powerful, how efficient the computing hardware is exactly. like per cost or per unit. Exactly. And we see the same trend in like the actual performance, right. the, amount of, uh, the amount of operations that you can uh, get out of like a given process. So up until 2010, what you observed is that um, the amount of compute used for machine learning models um, increased just in line with this Moore's law, which suggests that um, it wasn't going faster than Moore's law for some reason. For instance, a larger share of compute was used or something like that. Yeah. So uh, then our second finding is uh, that in 2010, something happened. Uh, people are starting to wake up to the potential of like scaling up massively machine learning systems. Uh, there were like some landmark uh, achievements in that era, like for example, like AlexNet that uh, baffled everyone by uh, surpassing all other systems in image recognition. And people started upping the, their investment in machine learning. Now it is no longer that their computers are getting better over time, but also they're investing more money. They're willing to buy more GPUs. Got it. Okay, so first era, um, compute using ML models increases with Moore's law. Then we have the second era starting around 2010 where it increases faster. And the remedy of the doubling time of compute use? Around that time, our paper found a six month doubling time. That means like every year, the amount of compute that is used to train this uh, state of the art machine learning systems is like four times as much. Okay, all right, got it. Um, so exponentially faster than, than compute itself is becoming cheaper. Um, but is that the end of the story or is there more to come? So the, the third thing that, that we found, like this is already out, out, uh, outstanding in its own right. And it's probably like the figure that I would want uh, uh, the audience to remember. Like the, uh, the trend of compute, it doubles like every six months and this trend has kept up and, and until today. The second thing that we found, the third thing that we found is that uh, circa uh, around 2014, 
uh, there was like a discontinuity. It seems like uh, industry started realizing that like artificial intelligence had uh, some really important business applications, and uh, they upped the, their investment uh, in like machine learning quite massively. So we see like an increasing variance. This is the point where like uh, there is a split between like small machine learning labs, academic and academics who have like low budgets and big industry labs that, that were able to put like a hundred times as much compute as like everyone else on training these really useful machine learning systems. Uh, for example, an, an early example of this is like the Google Translate uh, trans, uh, Translation Neural Network, which uh, was put, uh, was was used in production, and uh, it has this landmark uh, feature of like be, uh, having been trained on like way more compute than like other systems around that era. Okay, got it. And I don't know if you have numbers in your head, so maybe this is putting you on the spot, but just to give a sense of the. Um, absolute magnitude of improvement since 2014. Can you quote something like the amount of compute used for models around 2014 and then the state of the art model it's used around now, like the latest um, text models? Due to the, due to the 19 uh, floating point operations, that was what, being used, what was being used uh, around 2014. Then like the industry labs, which came also circa uh, 2014, like up at this by like, uh, by like an order of magnitude more, like, uh, for example, AlphaGo was trained on about one to the 20 uh, floating point operations. Okay, that's quite a big difference. All right, nice. Yeah. And this this grew a lot, right? Like right now, uh, the, the amount of computers being used to train machine learning systems is around like 10 to the 24 floating point operations. That's like the, the biggest systems that we have today are being trained on around that amount of compute. Okay, I actually have a question which just, occurred to me, maybe it's just like too big to answer now, but um, we're seeing like many orders of magnitudes worth of improvement um, with doubling times between like six months and a year, right? You're just going to get that very quickly. Presumably that doesn't mean, that doesn't translate to orders of magnitude of improvement on kind of common sense measures of performance, right? Because that would be insane. Um, so maybe my question is like, do we have kind of measures of performance for things like image classification and text generation? And then do, can we say anything about how this improvement in compute has translated into improvements in performance? Like what's the kind of the elasticity there or something? So uh, we, we, we're seeing that this, uh, that this improvements in like this, this uh, increases in inputs are like being translated into increases in performance. And there's different ways that you can measure performance. Like the most typical one are like some more technical metrics, like things like uh, cross entropy. And uh, in the end, uh, what we find is that for every exponential increase in uh, for every exponential increase in like the inputs, we are seeing like uh, we're seeing a, a a linear increase on like uh, on these metrics. So the improvement. Uh, the improvement is like is still like blazingly fast, but we need to take care of like you know once we use when we're using these inputs to try to forecast like how artificial intelligence is gonna uh, overperform or underperform in the future. To keep in mind like okay, we need to change like we need to change the scale or the scale of these inputs to like the scales that we care about to the metrics that uh, that we care about. That's, sure. And you know, and like okay, maybe uh, maybe like a more interesting observation here. Yeah is that uh, 
for some of it, for some of these metrics, you're going to find that there is like a smooth relationship between like the inputs and the outputs. Mm -hmm. And there are for some others, there are, there is not, right? Like if you are, if you're measuring something like, for example, like does this machine learning system, this computer vision system, like correctly, correctly classify this picture of like a cat, yeah. then like, you know, this is like a binary. This metric is going to be like, yes or no. So there's going to be like a sharp point in which like suddenly the, the suddenly the machine learning system gets it and like, mm. uh, gets like, uh, gets actually gets a picture, right. But this is like a, but, uh, this is like a, a misleading way of, of looking about it in a sense. So like, I claim that for many of these sharp left turns, there is like a better way of looking about it in which like, instead of looking at like whether it got it correctly, you can look at like the internal weights of the model and like, what was the probability that it was a sign in that the picture was a cat. And then for that, you will see like that a smooth relationship. Okay, so to try saying that back, we often observe discontinuities in measures of performance. So as a model gradually scales up, there is often a point where it quite suddenly starts performing way better. But the thought is that often it's not like the weights of the model suddenly change or something like that. But instead, maybe there is a discontinuity between um, how a smoothly improving underlying measure of performance translates into the kind of performance that we're measuring. Is that right? Exactly. And then we then there's like two things that we care about. Like one of them is like, how often does it hold that there is like this smooth metrics of performance that we can also use to forecast like this uh, less continuous metrics, metrics of performance, which is critical to see if like what we're doing is actually going to be like a good approach to forecasting the future of AI. And then there's like the second question of like the, the metrics that we're going to care about are themselves going to be things that are discontinuous or are themselves going to be things that are more continuous in nature? Okay, cool. So we talked about this Compute Trends paper. You mentioned that um, we've reached something like a kind of third era in Compute Trends um, when there's this kind of big explosion in variance with how much compute different projects use, in particular, the just well-resourced like industry um, projects can just throw a ton of compute and the amount that's growing, the state-of-the-art models is, uh, that amount is growing faster than the Moore's law, significantly faster. Um, one reason this might be important is if it implies anything for how compute continues to grow in the future. So. Another big impossible question, but like, how do you start thinking about extrapolating um, that trend into the future? So um, when uh, when we first released this paper, we shortly after released uh, uh, a rather naive model in which like we try to extrapolate uh, these trends into the future, where essentially what we're looking at is uh, Okay, like this trend of like compute is essentially driven by like the amount of investment that has been put into the field and like improvements in hardware. And we will we, uh, we will say like okay, let's imagine that like the improvements in hardware are going to be kept constant in the future, but like investment is going to keep growing up until a point where it reaches like you know like such an up, such a big amount of money that like companies are not going to be able to like sure. keep up with uh, keep up with the with the spending. And we try to we try to uh, to extend this uh, this trend under these two assumptions and like see what kind of like distribution uh, we will we will get like what uh, uh, what uh, 
pronostic we will get for like compute in the future. Okay, cool. Um, just quickly, what is the name of this this paper in case people want to see it? So this report, uh, not a paper, more like a, a report. report. Okay, okay. Is um, a projecting compute trends in machine learning that can be found in our website. Got it. Cool. And we'll link to it as well. Um, okay. And then what what did you find when you just ran this kind of simple extrapolation? So running this simple extrapolation, uh, what we will find is that uh, the, the amount the amount of compute uh, up until like you know like you will you will expect that uh, the amount of compute in the next ten uh, ten uh, years is uh, gonna be like roughly five orders of magnitude bigger than what we have today, which is roughly what you will expect, uh, given that like trends uh, the trends doubling like every six months. Yeah. And then like it keeps growing and growing. And uh it's interesting like to put this in in context with like some uh with like some estimates that other researchers have done about like some uh interesting amounts of compute, right? Yeah, could you say something about what these different compute benchmarks were based on biology and then what your um extrapolations say about when they might be hit? So uh this kind of like idea uh, of Kotra was like trying to uh, as, uh, estimate like what is the amount of compute that is used like for example to train a human being like how much data is is it is a human being exposed to since like they are born up until they are like uh, they reach like the age majority yeah. and like how much compute you will need in order to like process that data that's kind of like the the rough crazy idea that uh, that that I had. And uh, for that very basic benchmark, then like what we will say is that uh, we will reach that critical amount of compute uh, and data processing capability for like our machine learning systems uh, near uh, the end of this decade, uh, according to like this naive extrapolation. Okay, so yeah, again, on this naive model, the idea is there is some benchmark which is like a rough guess about the amount of compute that a human um, needs to effectively train a human, like you're training a model to a point where they're just like competent and generally intelligent. And the idea is that, yeah, on your extrapolations, we reach that amount of compute near the end of this decade. So less than 10 years time. That is correct. And it's not exactly clear like what this means for us, like uh, a very, like, you know, if you're trying to use it to forecast when we're going to reach transformative artificial intelligence, uh, a, a very uh, obvious objection to make is that, well, you know, like uh, humans are not like, do not start at zero, right? We have like a lot of like pre-encoded information in like in our genes. Also, we learn a lot through uh, cultural evolution. Not everyone has to figure out everything for themselves. Mm. So uh, I yeah, also estimated like some other critical amounts of like uh, of like uh, compute mm. that you will need for like some other landmarks and like uh, perhaps like uh, another uh, notable landmark is like the amount of compute that was used by evolution to like uh, create human being. Yeah, got it, got it. Which uh, for that, our, this naive extrapolation will like say that we'll reach it somewhere between like uh, 2070 and like 2080. But this is uh, this is now getting to the regime of the extrapolation, which like I will trust like very, very little or not at all. But I guess just to say the thought back, the idea is um, if you care about forecasting when transformative AI might arrive or different versions of that, um, then it might be a bit misleading just to look at 
the amount of quote unquote compute that you know like a, a human uses from when they're a baby to when they're an adult because the maybe some of our uh, intelligence um, is kind of borrowed from other like compute like processes such as evolution natural selection such as cultural evolution um, so we might care about forecasting these things as well um, cool I think you you said something about it like five minutes ago but when you are doing this exercise of extrapolating compute trends in ml models into the future um, one consideration you might hit up against is just that there's that the fraction of compute used in ml models is as a share of all the compute in the world is increasing and you can't use more than 100% of all the compute in the world. Um, and so maybe that means that the growth over time has to slow down um, to the limit of just the growth in all the compute in the world. And is there some thought there that that means that we might expect compute trends to, to slow down once they become so enormous that they're just like a appreciable and expensive fraction of all the resources we have? Absolutely, absolutely. I think that the general form of this argument of like, you know, this can't go on, right? Like this rate of growth is like so massive that at some point it not only like devours the whole economy, but like it 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 implies that we will have that uh, you will need like more resources than the whole economy in order to sustain it. Uh, maybe the way that I would phrase it is not maybe not so much with like the specific amount of the fraction of compute that's been uh, that is being dedicated because. As a matter of fact, like uh, the kind of uh, the kind of uh, hardware that is being used for like machine learning systems uh, tends to be like quite uh, specialized in, in in some regards. But uh, instead, uh, instead, like the frame that I have more in the head in my head is like you know uh, these chips like they are physical objects. They need like some time to to be produced. And like sure, you can like scale up production up until some point, and you can also divest resources from other types of like R and D up until some point, but eventually you're going to hit that limit. All right, got it. Okay, so that was Whistlestop Tour of Epoch's work on compute trends over time. But there were other factors that plug in to these questions about um, forecasting but the performance of ML models. Another factor is data, right? This is just like the information with which you train models on. Doesn't matter if you have a supercomputer, if you only have like a couple pages worth of text to train it on. Um, and Epoch has already has also looked at um, trends in the size of data sets, which I guess is the relevant thing here. Um, yeah, I mean, one question is just, what exactly is like a data set in this context? So for machine learning uh, to learn, you need to have something they can learn on. Uh, these days, within the paradigm that we live in, which like is mostly this kind of like uh, language generation models, the kind of text that you need is uh, text uh, from the internet, text from books, text uh, from Wikipedia. That kind of that kind of text is used to help the the systems play this game of like okay I'm gonna give you the text trun uh, truncated up until yeah. a point and then like you need to guess what's the next uh, the next word that comes and then you compare its guess with like what actually comes in the data set and you use that kind of signal in order to train uh, better models maybe uh, maybe uh, one nuance that I would add to what you said is like we're focusing on the size of the data set 
I see this as like more by necessity than by choice. Like I think that also the quality of the data set is like an important is an important factor in order to determine how much learning you can get out of it. But since that's that's like a whole other dimension to to capture that's like really hard to mm -hmm. measure, we proxy it. We just we just focused on like the easy dimension, which is the size of the got data it, set. Itself. That's a fair point. Like I guess you could just like generate a bunch of just random data. That's not very useful. So what matters is it's, it's actually useful data. Okay, so earlier you mentioned that um, the availability of even high quality data historically hasn't been a major bottleneck on scaling up performance of ML models, um, or at least maybe not until recently. Um, so yeah, maybe we could just talk about what does the state of the art look like now? How, how big are the um, data sets maybe for like image or text models for the very top models these days? So for the very top models these days, uh, focusing on, on text, uh, the kind of data sets that are being used are like short of like a trillion words uh, of, uh, of, of, uh, of training data. Okay. I feel like I don't have a very good sense of what a trillion tokens or words actually mean. So can you say something about what that is as a fraction of something like I don't know, all the books ever written or all of Wikipedia or all of the internet. So roughly this will be about like a thousandth of like all the uh, all the text that is on indexed websites on the internet. Okay, all right. So that's a pretty decent, decent fraction. Um, okay, and then I guess that raises a natural question, which is, you know, if we pass through three orders of magnitude of scaling up the data sets that we use, we may be hitting up against limits of what the entire internet can offer. Um, so I understand you've investigated this question and I'm curious what um, you found um, when we're trying to think about whether data might become a bottleneck soon and whether we might run out of high quality data for ML training. So we recently published an investigation that was led by my colleague, uh, Pablo Villalobos, where we uh, investigated exactly this question. And uh, what, uh, what we found is that for high-quality data, things like books, things like Wikipedia articles, there isn't actually that much, uh, that much data. And it seems likely that we're going to hit the limits at, uh, at around uh, some, uh, somewhere in this decade. Okay, all right. And you know this is already taken into account that you know new books are written, new websites uh, are published, and like even taking that into account, it seems likely that uh, that growth, that that amount of uh, that increase in data is not going to be enough to make up for like the increase in demands of machine learning. Okay, interesting. As a complete side note, a few months ago, I um, tried to figure out whether it would be possible for a person to read all of English Wikipedia. And I think the answer is just about like if you spent your entire life from like the age of literacy and you like lived a long enough life and you spent all your waking hours reading, you might be able to read all, all of Wikipedia, which was kind of surprising to me. Like it felt like I thought Wikipedia was a little bit bigger than that. Seems like a fan side project. <laughs> yeah, some side project. Um, uh, oh yeah, so one question is, um, you mentioned this is true even accounting for the fact that the stock of text data on the internet is growing over time. I'm curious how fast the internet is growing in this sense, because you know there are more people using it, there are more ways to use it, there are more ways to generate a ton of data and put it on the internet. So um, presumably it's not growing linearly, but it's, it sounds like it's not growing fast enough 
Okay, so the amount of data that uh, that is being uploaded on the internet, like it is still growing exponentially, it's still growing very fast. Like, you know, population is still increasing exponentially. Access to, in to the internet is also, uh, uh, it's also a quantity that is like, uh, thankfully increasing more uh, over time. And like roughly what we find is that the, the stock of data is like growing at a rate of like maybe somewhere between like 6% to like 70% growth per year. Okay. That's a pretty wide error bar, is that? Yeah, necess necessarily like necessarily it has to be. There is a, there isn't like a centralized repository, right? Where like, uh, which keeps track of like all the data that's on the internet is based on like very rough estimates. Yeah, yeah, got it. Um, but in any case, it sounds like it's very likely growing slower than, uh, for instance, you know, transistors on chips, Moore's law, and also um, than the rates of compute used by ML models. So more definitely, got it, got it, got it. And then just to try saying back the idea here, yeah, is the thought that up until now, the availability of um, data hasn't been the bottleneck because um, there's always been a ton of more data than really it's been feasible to do anything with. And so the main question has just been, how much data can we practically use given the constraints we have on the amount of compute we have access to? Um, but you can imagine that once access to compute scales fast enough, then you really could feasibly use more than an entire internet's worth of, of data. And at that point, um, access to just more data becomes the bottleneck because it's hard to get more performance, like squeeze more performance out of um, a data set which doesn't, doesn't grow. Is that the idea? Exactly. That's uh, that is exactly right. And then, like the question is, like, what happens then? Right. 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 And um, the the first thing is that up to this point, we have been talking a lot about high quality data. So data is like very well structured. Things like books, things like Wikipedia. Presumably, there's like much more data available in the internet, right? Like you can still like use social media posts. You can use Reddit. You can you can take uh, YouTube videos tra and transcribe them and use this and use this as data. If you're willing to use that kind of like more low quality data to train uh, to train your uh, machine learning systems, then like presumably you, you can extend this deadline, right? It seems uh, it seems likely that this low quality data stock can last us up until uh, ne uh, next uh, uh, up until next decade. So probably won't run uh, won't will run out somewhere in the next decade. Yeah. Unclear when exactly. Got it. One idea I've heard a couple of people mention is. Maybe you could just generate your own data. Like you already have a model which is capable of generating kind of coherent words. Why don't you just kind of feed that back into the the trading? Does that make sense, or is that ridiculous? It does make a lot of sense, and there's like uh, there is actually a plethora of paper that explore this kind of idea of like bootstrapping right. your own models by like generating uh, data that you then can later feed into the model itself. And I do expect that we're going to see a lot of cleverness in that uh, regard in the next few years. As like data becomes more of a bottleneck, there is going to be a big incentive to like investigate some ways of like increasing the increasing the the the, the efficiency with which you process the data that you have. I see. So uh, I do think that we haven't yet had to try hard enough to like overcome this kind of data limitations. You know, you could always just like use a bigger data set. But now you're gonna have to. You're gonna have to know. You have to make do with what you have. 
and this is going to lead to a lot of innovation. Like uh, some other promising papers that have been released, like there was this uh, recent paper uh, that uh, at NeurIPS that was looking at uh, data pruning and uh, like how uh, you could achieve like a similar level of performance only using like a fraction of like a data set. Okay, got it. So I guess we're talking about um, ways in which this limitation on data might be overcome, or at least, you know, you might push back the point where it becomes a real bottleneck by a few years. One example is um, dealing with the data that we already have more efficiently and pruning it in, in cleverer ways. Maybe there's something which looks a bit like bootstrapping our own data, although I guess there's a limit to how much you can do that. Um, are there any other ways in which it might be possible to kind of overcome this looming bottleneck? Well, I think that the the ways that I said like cover the kind of ideas that I have in mind. I'm pretty sure that like researchers in the future and like people who specialize in this field have like way more clever ideas uh, yeah. in the workings. Um, so yeah, the things that that I will say is like we might see people uh, people using like uh, YouTube as like a source of like data, um, uh, transcribing the conversations there using like this kind of synthetic data. Okay, so when we're talking about compute, we mentioned um, Ajay Kotra's biological anchors report. And um, in that report, there's this estimate of how much compute an, uh, a human uses, right? Up to the point of, of you know, adulthood or something like that. Um, can we ask the same question about how much like data I was quote unquote trained on, let's say before my like 18th birthday or something? Yes. So um, we we can uh, we can ask uh, we can ask the the same question of like you know how many words does like uh, does a kid listen to between when they are born and up until they reach uh, the majority of age, and uh, we did like uh, we did like a, a back of the envelope calculation uh, uh, back then at Epoch uh, just for fun internally, and it it takes uh, out to about like. 140 uh, million words. So it sounds like large language models now, even the very biggest ones, are trained on more words than humans need to be trained on to reach, I guess, a higher level of performance right now. It's kind of, I guess, interesting. Exactly, which will also lead us to think that, you know, uh, data efficiency improvements are certainly possible, unlike humans are the living proof of that. Right, got it. Or I guess maybe we are trained on other kinds of data which are harder to also, measure. Also that, also that. That's that's like a very fair point. Yeah, or both, I we guess. We are multimodal, right. we will say in the lingo. Okay, cool. So we have talked about trends in compute. We've talked about trends in the size of the data sets which ML models are trained on. Um, let's talk about this third factor now, which you mentioned, which is something like algorithmic efficiency or progress in, in, in algorithms. What exactly is that? I guess it's a bit harder to imagine exactly what the, the definition is. So exactly, uh, exactly what I mean by this is uh, how, the, uh, how you can like uh, decrease the requirements in compute and data that you need in order to reach like a, le a given level of performance. Okay, got it. So I guess it's like the, the special source that's left over once you've accounted for data and compute. Um, Cool. And related question, I guess it's kind of clear to me how you might measure the size of a data set, right? Um, also for compute, it's clear how you might um, operationalize that, but how do you measure algorithmic progress? 
Yeah, Asan, that is an excellent question. And I think that is one that, uh, that uh, is, is easy to struggle with. Um, essentially, like the, the traditional way of defining this uh, has been thinking about like, okay, if we take, uh, if we take like an architecture from like 10 years ago, Mm-hmm. And we train it up until it reaches like a certain level of performance on, for example, like ImageNet and image recognition, mm-hmm. right? Then you can measure like the amount of compute that you need in order to do that, right? And then like what you can do is that you can uh, you can take like a novel architecture, you can take like an architecture for today from today, and then you can train it on the same data set and then see like okay, how much less compute do you need with like this novel architecture with this uh, which uses compute more efficiently in order to reach the same level of performance. I see. And that kind of like uh, that, that factor by which you decrease the compute, but still get the same performance, this is in a sense like a measure of algorithmic progress. I don't think that this is like the, the best measure to this. There's like a big problem with this, which has to do with like modern architectures are more efficient, are like really large, uh, are like really large scales, right? So if you are comparing like a transformer from today, for example, with like AlexNet from 10, uh, from 10 years ago, like it's gonna, this is gonna like understate how much algorithmic progress has happened because transformers are not that efficient when you're like training them to the level of like AlexNet performance. You really need to train them on like harder tasks in order for them to shine. I see. Okay, so the idea is um, if you're just comparing AlexNet to a big transformer, say the art transformer, one way you could do that is you could um, train up AlexNet to the performance of, of you know, AlexNet on some benchmark and then train a, a more um, recent transformer model on the um, same data to reach the same performance as the AlexNet. And then it, maybe it'll take less compute, but that's really underrating where the, um, the progress is between AlexNet and, and newer models. And the progress is when you like massively scale up the amount of data and compute that you're using. Exactly, exactly. So then you need, you need to adjust for this. And essentially you need to extrapolate, like, you know, if we could like grow AlexNet up until when it reaches like the performance of like modern transformers, like how much compute uh, could it need? And then compare that to what uh, transformers actually need. And that's what my colleagues, uh, Ege Erdil and Tamai Basiroglu did in the recent investigation of algorithmic progress for computer vision. All right, and what did they find? So what they find is that the rate of algorithmic progress is uh, way faster than what was previously believed. So uh, roughly the amount of compute that uh, you need in order to reach like a level of performance is like halving every nine months. That's like less every every year you need like half the uh, half the amount of compute faster than that. Okay, that's pretty fascinating. So it sounds like the trends in Compute and algorithmic efficiency are um, doubling slash halving um, on something like the order of a year or even less than that, which in both cases is is faster than Moore's law. And then I guess in some sense you're like multiplying these two things, right? Or roughly speaking, you're doing that. And so you have this like much faster growth than Moore's law in just the performance of of models. Um, got it. And. Yeah, I guess I'm curious to zoom in a bit more on how algorithmic efficiency um, relates to specifically efficiency with respect to compute and efficiency with respect to data. Because I can imagine maybe you come up with an algorithm where you really still need the same amount of data, but it just requires less compute or vice versa. So yeah, I guess what's what's going on there? 
Yeah, so uh, different uh, different algorithms, um, uh, algorithmic improvements tend to like improve uh, different parts of like the pipeline and like have different effects on like the amount of compute and the amount of data that uh, that you have. Uh, primarily, what we have seen in this in this last uh, decade has been improvements on uh, on compute. So like most most improvements, uh, when it comes down to it, like they seem to be uh, improving like the performance that we have because they improve our usage of compute, right. and not so much with data. With data, there seems to be currently like much less innovation. But I want to I want to uh, to emphasize again, like I think that the reason why they right. know, we haven't like seen that necessary. much innovation, exactly, exactly. There is a, there is like less of a need for like those kind of like data efficiency uh, improvements. Okay, got it, got it, got it. Um, one thing I should have asked a bit earlier is just for examples of um, improvements in algorithmic efficiency, are there like architectures that, that I should know about or specific models where there's some innovation that really helps move things along? Well, these days you definitely cannot talk about machine learning without mentioning transformers, which has been this really general architecture that uh, has overtaken like many fields in artificial intelligence. They were particularly like a big improvements of, uh, com as compared to like recurrent neural networks in text generation. But uh, I, I will give you others that are maybe like a bit more reduced in scope and maybe a bit easier to understand like how this improved the, the compute efficiency. Uh, another big uh, another improvement was uh, the improvement in like the activations of the neural network. So like uh, in a neural network, essentially you have two types of operations. You have matrix multiplications and then you have some non-linearities. And uh, before what we tended to use uh, was uh, some uh, uh, sort of like complicated uh, non-linearity that took like a lot of compute. And we have uh, replaced that by what's called a rectified linear unit, which essentially you just take like, you just take like the neuron and you just like, uh, if it's less than zero, you set it at zero and otherwise you leave it at this. It's a very simple operation. It requires like very little computation. But it turned out that that kind of, uh, that kind of like simple function was enough to like still uh, to like still train machine learning uh, systems, but at a reduced compute cost. So it sounds like you can get um, big step changes in algorithmic efficiency from inventing a new architecture, but you also get these like small innovations which just um, improve existing architectures and just kind of it's a more gradual thing. Yeah, uh, and and uh, another way in which like we have. Um, learn to, to improve our machine learning models is by improving the recipe by which these machine learning models are trained, right? So when you need to train a machine learning model, uh, you need to decide like how big it is going to be, how many parameters you're going to use, how much data uh, you're going to use, and what's going to be the relationship between like the parameters and the data. And uh, recent work on scaling laws has improved a lot the way that uh, this recipe, the way that uh, we train these machine learning models in order to get better performance using the same level of compute, just by varying this ratio between the amount of data that is used and like the size of the model. Okay, so you have like a bunch of dials on your model, and one thing you can do is just tweak the dials so you can get more more oomph out of it. Um, yeah, interesting. I feel like I have a kind of vague question I want to ask, which is when maybe this is just asking about your own intuitions rather than anything more rigorous. But when you look ahead to thinking about how performance in ML models might improve over the next decade or so, do you imagine most of that improvement coming from these kind of dial tweaking, small innovation type improvements? Or do you imagine it coming from 
one or two big changes to the to the paradigm where you have a new thing like a transformer which just gets you a lot more I feel like I don't have a super good intuition on this. Um, part of it, I think it is because uh, we, we uh, some of our homework pending at Epoch is like doing a more systematic study of like the kind of innovations that have happened in the in, over the last decade. We have studied its aggregate effects, but yeah. not so much like the individual innovations that have happened and like how important they have been relative to one another. Okay, got it. I mean, I guess a related question, which is a, an enormous question and not one that it's reasonable to expect any one person to have the answer to is like, do the current um, architectures, paradigms scale to the truly, you know, transformative or general kinds of AI, right? So if you just like turn up the, the data and you turn up the amount of compute you're throwing at the kinds of models we have right now, like transformers, um, do they reach something like kind of general intelligence or is there some like secret extra improvement in, in algorithms? Good question. Uh, <laughs> ma many people are asking that uh, that question. Uh, there is different opinions even within Epoch. My personal take is that the scaling laws have held up uh, until now and it will be surprising for them to suddenly stop working. So I will. I expect that uh, we're gonna keep seeing improvements in the in the uh, at the very least in the short term, probably in, the, in for this next decade, just by scaling like the the inputs to like these machine learning systems. That being said, I think that there is like some key limitations with like current machine learning systems. Uh, the 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 more fuzzy question for me is like how easy it is gonna be to dedicate to to. Uh, overcome this limitation. Like for example, uh, with transformer models right now, they have a very limited uh, a context length, right? They cannot, uh, you cannot have like a transformer right now, write a, a book for you because it's gonna, in a sense, it's gonna run out of memory. This is maybe like a way of describing it. Right, it's so like once it's on chapter two, it's kind of forgotten about what it wrote in chapter one. So it's like a little bit random the direction it takes. Exactly, exactly. And then the, there is the question of like, how can it, how, how can we overcome this limitation? Like, you know, it can be as simple as like designing a, designing a scheme in which like this transformer, this transformer model, like writes some intermediate thoughts in like some sort of like a scratch up, a scratch pad memory that it can consult afterwards. Uh, will that be enough? Maybe. Uh, there are also like some other limitations. Like for example, like you can like uh, formally prove that like transformers are not capable of like uh, adding digits together. Sort of, in a sense. This is uh, essentially at some point, you know, there's there's gonna be like some input that is gonna be like large enough that like the system is not gonna be good, big enough. Uh, it's not gonna be big enough to process, right? So th there seems to be like some loop missing that allows the the the, the system to like uh, uh, actually do this kind of like uh, this this kind of operation. So like you know, this can be maybe what's going to happen is that in the future these transformer systems might be hooked up to like a terminal, to like a Python terminal, a programming terminal. And like, it will write like the program that it will solve the task for it. And that will be, will that be enough? I don't know, maybe the, the fact that, the fact that I cannot say like, no, this is ridiculous. Like, I think that should tell you something about like my beliefs about the scanning laws and the kind of uh, progress we might see in the future. Yeah, super interesting. I have a bunch of questions, um, but it, it sounds like Okay, one kind of progress we can imagine is not coming up with some incredible, elegant new paradigm which solves all the problems. It's like maybe we take the, the architectures which perform very well in certain ways and we kind of 
clutch them together with other things or plug them into other things. And then we have this kind of more complete system. Um, so I'm thinking about the analogy to humans, right? So like my short-term memory is not nearly the length of a um, chapter of a book, but like I at least hope that I could write a book that is somewhat coherent across chapters. And why is that? Well, I can like write a plan down on a piece of paper and then check back the paper. And like similarly, I can, at least I haven't checked recently, but hopefully I can still add, you know, um, eight digit numbers together. But I can't really do this like in my head, but again, I like can write the numbers down on a piece of paper and like apply these rules. And it's kind of this like recursive loop that I can just kind of apply arbitrarily many times. And then, yeah, similarly, maybe we can just plug these different capabilities into, into existing um, architectures. That's the, that's the thought, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, an interesting reflection is like, you know, this can be the baseline, right? There is like the possibility that the current paradigm is like something uh, powerful enough to get us to uh, some kinds of transformative artificial intelligence. But this is a really recent paradigm. This is uh, deep learning has been around for like just 10 years. Like there exists the possibility that we will come up with like an even better way of like uh, of like uh, conceptualizing machine learning that will be like even more even more flexible than the current paradigm. Interesting, got it. And then again, should have asked this earlier, but you mentioned um, scaling laws. Can you remind me exactly what scaling laws are saying? Yeah, so uh, scaling laws are like this uh, this regularity between like the the compute that is being used to to train the systems, the data that is used to train the systems, and like the size of the models, and the observed performance of, of them. And, uh, and like many people have been studying, like okay, like you know, if you were to tell me just like the amount of data that is being used, the, the amount of uh, the amount of uh, of parameters, the amount of compute. And like we were to train them in like a, in like an optimal way, according to like current theory, like how what performance should we expect out of uh, out of it? Got it. I guess this is more or less what we've been talking about, right? But just to kind of just to say it again, it sounds like you know one finding is that um, the relationship between performance and these inputs is surprisingly regular so far. Um, such that if you just throw more compute and more data, then you you get this like reliable improvement in performance, and maybe the performance scales depending on your measure, um, something like logarithmically with like total data or compute. Is that that the idea? Yeah, that's cool. that's a rough idea. These kind of scaling laws are usually studied in a specific domains, right? So we have like a pretty good understanding of like for text generation in a specific, like what can what this regularity looks like for image generation in a specific, what this regularity looks like. Uh, it's like less clear, like okay, like what about interdomain progress? So we expect this kind of regularity. Can we somehow anticipate like when are we going to see advancements in like other fields? This is more speculative. Got it. Okay, maybe we could try like summarizing what we've talked about so far. At least that'd be useful for me. So you know, we talked about these like inputs to the performance of ML models, which are like compute, data, and algorithmic efficiency. Um, and then you could extrapolate all of these things forwards. But um, yeah, I'm just curious on kind of hearing again, like how these things add up for you or for Epoch's work in terms of um, what kinds of even rough or naive predictions they yield for the next like let's say, a decade of, of progress in ML, and especially what they might tell us about um, what we should expect to happen between now and reaching something like transformative AI. So let me summarize like the, the three uh, 
takeaways that I will want uh, the listener to 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 remember from this uh, conversation. Compute, it's doubling every six months. That trend has continued for, for like 10 years and it will possibly continue in the future. Data, we might run out of data in the either this decade or the next one. Uh, but this does not necessarily mean the end of uh, the end of like scaling in machine learning. This might be this this probably means that uh, data efficiency is going to be more important. And third, regarding algorithmic innovation, in the last decade, the compute requirements for computer vision have like halved every nine months. In other domains, it seems like this trend can be like even faster, and this will possibly also continue in the future. And like, what does this mean? Well, given what we have talked about, like the regularity of the scaling laws, the fact that these inputs keep like growing and they seem like they're not going to stop, yeah. it definitely means that for the next decade, we should keep, uh, we should expect uh, still uh, very new, exciting developments every year. Right. <laughs> it seems like a good answer. Um, uh, I guess I don't want to put you on the spot, but like people enjoy talking about things like their their timelines, uh, like you know, um, median expectation for when we reach some version of transformative AI, um, and also people like talking about um, their expectations for takeoff speeds. That is what happens between now and that point. Um, I don't know if you have you know numbers that you can share about what what kind of your own timelines look like, or at least how you think about these things, given what we've talked about. Yeah, uh, excellent question. So uh, to inform my my thinking about timelines, uh, this at this point I'm like quite anchored on like uh, previous work uh, that has happened. There have been like uh, some uh, people have put up uh, put together uh, some uh, quantitative models to try to understand like uh, try to estimate in like a very rough way like what is like the amount of compute that you will need in order to like uh, achieve like a transformative uh, capability. And then like how fast is like our stock of compute growing and not only the stock of compute, but also like how are like compute requirements decreasing over time as we talked in the algorithmic improvement section. And uh, I find these inside view models like somewhat compelling. Uh, I think that the weakest part is probably the part that has to do with uh, estimating these transformative thresholds uh, for compute. And I'm, I'm hoping that like you will see some uh, some more work from Epoch uh, trying to address this question. Okay. But uh, for the time being, I think that they're like a reasonably reasonable starting point uh, for conversation. Uh, I, I Compared to like uh, some other models, uh, like I think that uh, like, like for example, uh, we always have to refer here like to Ayakotra's model, right? That predicted a median of around 2050 um, where we will reach transformative artificial intelligence. Uh, I think that there are like some, there's like, I have like some mi minor quibbles with like the model and like, you know, Aida herself uh, has like uh, pointed to like some of the weaknesses of the model. Like, for example, it doesn't take into account that, you know, AI, even if, uh, if even before we get to the point where like AI can perform like all economically useful tasks, AI is going to be able to like perform some economically useful tasks, right? And this presumably is going to redound in like uh, a speed up in like the R&D in AI and other parts of the economy. Like investment and interest flows in once they observe that some economically useful tasks are possible. And also, and not only interest, that too, but also, uh, also this has to do with like, you know, we're going to be able to use these AIs in order oh, to right, speed okay, up our okay. work. 
Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like within within Epoch, we also sometimes use like some uh, some AI help in order to help us write papers and um, emails. Okay, I guess that's another example of bootstrapping, right? It's like using the less capable AI to make the more capable AI. Um, and get, taking that into account, like I do believe my timelines are like a bit shorter than that without entering into too much detail. Like I will say that my median right now is like somewhere between 2043. But then again, I want to say like, uh, even within Epoch, there's like a huge diversity of opinions. There's people who have like timelines are sort of like 12 years and like as long as like a hundred years. Okay, got it. Thanks. That's still pretty useful. Um, Okay. And the other question that you asked has to do with like takeoff speed. So first, let me clarify a bit uh, what we mean by takeoff speeds. So um, in the future, the the well, I have talked about like how we're gonna get before we get like really powerful AI, we're gonna have like less powerful AI, right? And that's gonna be like a, a really critical period for us because it's gonna be that time in which like we're gonna have access to like these AI systems that are precursors of like uh, the, the the really powerful AI that we're gonna use to automate large chunks of our economy, and we're gonna be able to do lots of experiments with it. And that's gonna be like a very productive period. I uh, I expect for like alignment and like a strategy and understanding like uh, what this AI is gonna mean for the world. So we're really interested in like understanding like how long that critical period is going to be, like how long is it going to be the period between AI starting to get good and like AI is getting so good that it can perform like any remote remote job. Yeah, got it. And um, I think that right now my take is that the time between like AI that can perform like twenty percent of the economic tasks and like a hundred percent of the economic uh, economic tasks remotely remote economic tasks uh probably is gonna be like something somewhere between five years and ten years will be my guess at this point I definitely haven't rolled out uh, faster takeoffs but uh but that's what I have in mind now yeah I want to know what are the considerations when you're thinking about takeoff speeds so for instance what kinds of factors will make it if you learn about them, we'll make it more likely that we should expect first to take us or something. I'm going to ask you to wait for a couple of months uh, uh -huh. to check Watch our website. Space. Okay, so that was extremely interesting. I have a bunch of extra questions, I guess, just kind of extending or asking about the things you've talked about. Here's one. I guess so far we've been talking about the requirements in terms of computing data for um, training. ML models, right? But once you've trained an ML model, you also need some compute and other things to um, to like actually run it, to implement it, as it's like called inference, right? But instead of training. Um, I'm interested in whether you can say anything about how the requirements are different between what you need to train a model compared to what you then need to actually run it. And I'm imagining that this might actually be, you know, like relevant. Uh, if, for instance, it turns out it's much, much cheaper in different ways to um, run inference passes, to run a model once you've trained it, right? Because in that case, well, um, once you've trained a model, maybe you might be more worried about other people just like stealing the, the weights, or maybe you might expect um, once the model has been trained that it it gets, it, or it can get rolled out extremely quickly, right? Because all the work's basically been done. So yeah, curious about this kind of vague question about the difference in, in requirements between training and, and um, inference. Yeah, this is hardly a big question. And it's a question that uh, we are really interested in at Epoch as well. 
Um, it seems, uh, 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 well, to give you like a sense of like how these two quantities compare, like uh, essentially in order to train, a, to train a system, what you need to do is like, you need to like process it, process the, the sample forward, then process it backwards through the network to like try to get like back the signal of like what it got wrong, essentially. And then you repeat this for like every data point that you have in that you have in your in your data set, right? So like you know the the um, the difference between like the amount of compute that you need to like train the data, uh, train the system and to run it is going to be roughly proportional to the size of uh, to the size of your data set, loosely speaking. Got it. Because to do one pass, one inference pass of my model, I just need to give it one bit of data, right? Like, for instance, it could be a prompt if it's a language model. But to train the model, you need to give it all the data. <laughs> OK. So given that we have now like data sets that, as I was saying, were like burning on like a trillion words, uh, yes. then that that uh, that means that like, you know, actually producing, actually producing this, uh, running the system to like spit out a word is going to be like a trillion times cheaper than like, uh, than like training the system itself. Uh, it seems like right now we uh, the, 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 uh, how this works uh, is that okay you're training like these really large uh, foundation models that have like very general capabilities and since like the training vastly exceeds uh, the, the, the the inference uh, so it, it's gonna seem like likely that once we develop like these really powerful systems we're gonna be able to like really quickly roll them out uh, on on society okay got it another any kind of particular um, upshots of that fact that seem kind of relevant for when we're like trying to imagine, for when we're just trying to think about what to expect, like what the world actually looks like once we're kind of able to train these very powerful models. Like what does this real difference in training and, and inference kind of practically mean? That's, that's a harder question that I can <laughs> answer in like a couple of minutes. But I suppose that we're going to, what we're going to see is that uh, there is going to be like a very small time between like demos being rebuilt and then like these demos being uh, made like widely available. Nice. Okay, cool. That's useful. Um, another question I was interested in is um, that Epoch did some work specifically predicting the performance of uh, GPUs, which I guess is important because GPUs are often used in, in ML applications. Um, yeah, could you say something about, about that work? Yeah, so as I was saying, like we're really interested in like how the amount of compute that's available for to train machine learning systems is going to grow over time. One part of that is that people have more money that they can use to buy more GPUs, but the other the, the other side of that is that GPUs are uh, becoming more efficient over time. You can like get more operations for like a given level of budget, right? So we, we have like a vested interest in like understanding how this progress happens and like whether it could like plausibly stop uh, in the future. Got it. Okay. And uh, we have like a few speculative reports in in our uh, in our website where like we tackle uh, these questions and essentially we just like plot the data. We just look at like what has been the historical cost of a flop for like different versions of like uh, of like GPUs in the last two decades and then like try to extrapolate this forward. I would recommend taking all this work with like uh, with like a grain of salt. Mm -hmm. um, this is uh, definitely like more on the speculative side or aside on like what we are uh, doing at the book. Okay, got it. But with that, that grain, grain of salt taken, um, what did you roughly find when you tried to plot the efficiency of GPUs? 
So essentially, what uh, what uh, what we uh, what we found is there's uh, there's indeed like an exponential trend happening. Uh, the hardware is uh, the, the amount of com compute is getting exponentially cheaper uh, over time. Uh, roughly, what roughly what we what we found is that uh, the amount of operations that you can purchase uh, for a dollar. The amount of like performance that you can purchase for a dollar, the amount of floating point operations per second per dollar, that will be the more. Yeah, just to clarify, this is like, for instance, if I am wanting to rent out some time on a GPU, then this is like what a dollar gets me for that time. Yes, more or less. More, it will be more like what you will get if you were to buy the GPUs yourself. Uh, okay. If you were to rent it on a on cloud computing, then you will also take into account like other costs like. Um, like, you know, there's also like a profit margin from like a cloud provider and that kind of thing. But I guess the reason I'm asking is like, okay, maybe I buy a GPU for like $500. I can just run that forever, right? So like the, the amount of compute per dollar is well, unclear to me. You can, but uh, you have to take into account two things. Uh, one of them is, well, eventually your GPU is going to break. Okay. Everything yeah. breaks. Yeah. The, the second one is that eventually your GPU is going to be outdated. And like, in fact, uh, we had another speculative analysis in our mm. website where like we, we, uh, we try to think like, okay, given that like GPUs regularly get outdated, like we use this fact to try to bound the, 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 the length of like a training run, right? Okay. It's like the longest training run that would be like sensible to do because yeah. at some point you might as well just start later. Exactly. You start later, you have, be uh, you have better hardware and because you have that better hardware, you're going to make up for the fact that you started later by having yeah. this more powerful hardware available. Got it. What did you find in that? In that? So essentially we found that uh, at the current levels of like, uh, of like improvement in, in hardware mm -hmm. and software and also the growth of like investment budgets. It seems uh, it seems uh, pretty likely that machine learning systems will like uh, uh, training runs will run for like less than fifteen months. Okay, wow, just because and everything I, gets and that's like the very upper bound. Like in uh, as a matter of fact, like in reality, like a fifty month fifteen month training run, it's unheard of. Yeah, how long are the training runs for, for instance, um, GBT three? So I cannot remember off the top of my head, uh, but uh, the kind of the, the kind of train run lengths that we're seeing these days is somewhere between like two months and like six months for like really high end systems. Okay, got it. Um, oh yeah, maybe one kind of detailed question is why could I not just start a training run with the best hardware I can get my hands on, uh, and I want it to be a really long training run, and then you know, let's say a couple of months in, I can get better hardware. Right, I just like swap it out mid mid training run. Why is that not feasible? Uh, so uh, that could uh, that could be in fact uh, feasible. Uh, it could be the case that uh, that uh, you can do these kind of changes. What's going to be more complicated is incorporating advances in software. Like if a new architecture is developed in that time, well. You you can't really like uh, reuse the uh, the training that you have done uh, so far. Also, there is like a lots of uh, there's like lots of complications associated with this kind of like hardware uh, hardware swapping, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, as, uh, 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 it seems uh, it seems like uh, yeah, you, you still need to like make sure that the architecture is like correctly transferred and like all those things that could cause like lots of uh, lots of issues. Okay, cool. Yeah, just sounds like a like a pain for hardware, and then like maybe in fact 
close to impossible if the trans the architecture really significantly changes. It is a pain. It is definitely possible. I actually don't have a really good sense of like whether this is common practice. I will. Uh, I think that uh, maybe some companies are doing it, but I think that the the norm is like you just don't bother with it. You just like you know. Yeah, buy more new beefs. Yeah, makes sense. Um, have you or has Epoch thought much about um, what we can kind of anticipate in terms of um, AI augmented R&D? So my colleague Tamai actually released a paper on, on this matter. I don't have like a super good insights on it. I still have pending my homework to familiarize myself on it. The bottom line is that, yes, it seems like R&D is going to be boosted by improvements in in deep learning. And this is going to be uh, this kind of like recursive loop in which like more improvements are going to lead to more R&D, more R&D leads to more improvements. Right, right, right. Because I guess there's a lot of loops here, which I'm trying to like get clear in my mind, right? So one obvious loop is um, that... AI can directly and specifically speed up the development of more capable models of like successive versions of itself, something like that. Um, another loop is that as um, AI systems are able to augment R&D, then they, and once they demonstrate success, then they might attract uh, even more investment over time. And that's a kind of like, bootstrapping uh, loop. And then maybe a third loop is just like, if AI is able to augment R&D at such a large scale that it just means the world's economy grows faster than it otherwise would, well, that just means in some sense, everything um, that's economically useful happens faster, including the development of of. AI. Is that, is that kind of roughly getting things right? And there's like lots of different loops going on? Yeah, that roughly matches my impressions. Like I think that at this point, the four main loops that I have in my mind when I think about artificial intelligence is what you were mentioning about like increased uh, attention and investment, improvements in like the algorithmic side of it, uh, increases in like the, the amount of money that there is around, like there's going to be more productivity, more GDP to go around. And maybe the, the other one that I will add to the list is like improvements to hardware, right? We're going to have uh, plausibly AI, AI designed chips uh, and like improvements to the process of like hardware production yeah. that are going to allow us to like decrease the cost of like uh, compute. Okay, Jaime, this has been super interesting. I suggest we talk about some Final questions now, which we ask everyone. Um, and the first question I think you could probably give an especially useful answer to, which is, are there any like ideas for research projects um, that you'd be really excited to see people um, take up? Maybe people who are listening to this podcast. Way too many, way too many. But, <laughs> but let me let me talk. I, I'm going to give maybe like some ideas, some things that fall squarely onto what uh, Epoch is all about and are things that we will probably research in the future, but by no means don't let this be an impediment for you to look into them as well. And then I will talk about some things that like a bit more uh, out there and do not uh, fall squarely into our expertise. So things that are like very within Epoch's scope and that I'm pretty excited about, one of them is like, understanding which tasks are going to be automated first. Like I think it came, uh, for many, it came as a surprise that like art generation happened to be one of the first things automated. 
mm-hmm. and I will want to ask the uh, ask the question of like what's going to fall next mm-hmm. what is gonna what is gonna be like the tech tree in a sense uh, of like which uh, tasks are gonna be automated first I think that this could have like large implications for like how fast uh, the economy is gonna is gonna be automated. The second question that I'm interested in is uh, uh, understanding better the availability of compute around the world, like how different labs have like access to like different levels of compute, how different countries have like different uh, access to different levels of compute, how in the future we might expect that uh, that uh, compute uh, stock to like grow. Uh, when are we going to hit limits? How fast can we build like new factories to meet right. uh, the growing demand? Yeah. That kind of thing. And the third thing that I'm really interested in, it's uh, understanding better returns to uh, to R and D. So, like we have been talking a lot about like how AI could speed up, uh, could speed up um, uh, research and development in like different areas, from like hardware to like AI itself. And uh, I want to get like a better understanding of like how historically uh, more inputs into these fields have uh, have. Uh, have been turned into improvements okay. and then like trying to understand like what happens when like you are able to like increase these inputs by an order of magnitude like how much that does, does this improve uh, uh developments like you know if you increase like inputs to research and development now by uh by 10 uh by a factor of 10 like that doesn't mean that like research is going to be like 10 times faster going uh, going forward right there's like lots of reasons to expect uh, strong diminishing returns in research and like a strong diminishing return to like allocating a large amount of like resources at the same time to like a particular field. Like you, you, you cannot, uh, there aren't that many researchers who are going to be able to work on the problem. There aren't like that many GPUs to do experiments. You run into this kind of bottlenecks. Sure. Okay. So, okay. These are, these are all great ideas. Um, you mentioned more like speculative, more kind of beyond epoch scope ideas. What about them? Yeah, so these will be like things that I don't think that we currently have an expertise in epoch, but I would be really excited about like other people uh, doing it. So like one of them has to do with uh, extreme value forecasting on the statistics. Mm-hmm. Like I think that uh, we have a lot uh, that we can learn from like the science of like how you predict how maxima evolves uh, over time. And without getting too technical into it, like I think this is really important for, for example, predicting how benchmarks in machine learning are gonna be uh, are gonna be bet uh, in, in the future. Okay, got it. Uh, another one uh, has to do more with social sociology, right? So currently, uh, with like uh, there is like a very strong uh, movement against uh, artificial intelligence generated art by uh, traditional artists, and. Uh, this is like a this is like a force to be reckoned in the world, right? Like we could see that uh, they could uh, they could organize and and try to pass like some regulation that is going to affect the development of artificial intelligence in the future. It's going to also affect like the perceptions around artificial intelligence mm-hmm. and how people are going to choose to invest or not in in these technologies. Like I will want to understand better. Uh, Past, uh, past, uh, past analogous, uh, uh, past uh, analogs of this, uh, uh, of these questions, and uh, of these movements, and also try to understand better, like what could be the consequences of these social movements being organized. Like, what are they going to to achieve in the world? Okay, that's super interesting. I guess yeah. One example that comes to mind is the Luddite movement, right? Where they had just like very legitimate grievances, where they, in some sense, their livelihoods were being automated away. And now this word means something quite different, right? Um, 
Nice. Okay. Any other ideas? So uh, another uh, another field uh, uh, that I'm really interested in getting a better understanding of, and there's already some work on this, is studying some historical analogs to artificial intelligence in the sense of like some past technologies that ended up being revolutionary. Like it could be like the electricity and the internet. There's like a really good report on this uh, by Ben Garfinkel. Uh, but I will want to see more. I want to to understand better. Like what can we learn from like uh, the management of like nuclear bombs uh, that could be applied to artificial intelligence? And uh, what could we learn from like other technologies and how they were deployed and developed? Sounds like there's endless ideas within that idea. Um, fantastic. There's a ton of stuff there. We'll try ready them all up so people can can get involved if they want. Um, all right. Here's another question we ask everyone: Can you recommend some books or you know websites, reports, which people could go and read if they want to learn more about what we've been speaking about? Yes. So um, one one resource that I would recommend a lot uh, is uh, our rolling data. Just recently put together a collection of resources about artificial intelligence which I think is uh, a good introduction to, to the topic and to look at like some of, of the graphs that illustrate the topics we have been chatting about. Um, another one, and I don't know if this is uh, cheating, but I suppose I would recommend uh, our website, uh, ebook. Totally, so do I. <laughs> <laughs> There's like lots of publications, we have visualizations and like other tools that uh, you might find uh, interesting in order to understand better this topic. And maybe uh, a third thing that I would recommend uh, to try to understand also the side of like uh, people who are thinking about what are going to be the consequences of developing this technology is this uh, introductory series called The Most Important Century by, uh, by Holden Karnofsky. Uh, uh, I think that uh, uh, more people should be thinking about like what are going to be the consequences of like these technolo uh, technologies being deployed in the real world. And I think that's like a really good, uh, re really good attempt that will help orient uh, your own thinking. Fantastic. Those are some great uh, recommendations. Okay. All right. So our last question is, I happen to know that you have a side project of uh, making AI arts. Um, maybe one question is, you know, seems very likely that AI will make it easier for um, people who don't have a background as a traditional artist to to generate really good art, um, at least by many people's standards. Um, yeah, I'm also curious, I guess, on the flip side, whether you think you'll, it'll lead to like a niche for for like traditional non-AI artists, um, or whether you think, let's say, AI, AI augmented artists, whether they might reach a similar cultural position to artists today. I guess it's a question about something like the sociology of art, given that AI can now generate art. Does that make sense? Yeah, uh, I think that the, the the correct analog to be thinking about when, yeah. when thinking about AI art is uh, probably photography. So like when photography was developed, it was like this new form of art that, uh, that, that uh, was, uh, what, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Like uh, it's a, uh, uh, it was perceived at the time as like uh, as like a replacing in a sense uh, traditional paintings. Yeah. But uh, in the end, it has to know that this was not the case, right? Like uh, uh, photography ended up its own uh, its own form of art with like its uh, its own developed techniques and tradition. And I do expect that in artificial intelligence, we're also gonna see a similar thing. I'm like quite excited about uh, the potential for this technology to like. Uh, 
uh, in a sense, uh, I want to say like democratize art. Maybe that's not the, the correct word, but uh, it's definitely going to allow like many people to like express themselves artistically, whereas before they didn't have like enough time to like uh, engage with like uh, some other forms of art. Yeah, totally. I love the analogy to um, photography. I don't know how much you know about the history, but is it the case that when photography was initially developed, it was like viewed as, as artless or something like that? Uh, so I'm definitely not an expert. I have heard uh, I have recently about um, uh, something like that happening with the radio uh, when like uh, singers started to be replaced, yeah. which uh, also I think that is like an interesting analog because with AI art, uh, it, th there's a, here like a very interesting, like uh, an important ethical and like regulatory question mm -hmm. which has to do with like the, the data that these um, uh, uh, machine learning systems are being trained on, right? And we're going to have like a society to have like a conversation between like what's going to be like the correct way of like uh, of like using that data, what are going to be the norms that we're going to establish. And I believe that uh, something similar happened when like uh, radio was first uh, introduced uh, to, uh, to the public where like artists where like singers uh, and artists like uh, at the beginning had like a very strong reaction but then like uh, a conversation was developed to try to uh, to develop better copyright uh, norms so that they could uh, so they could like still like practice their uh, practice their art and like uh, be fairly compensated for it okay what was the what was the complaint that um, musical artists had when radio came about? Was it just like harder to make money now that um, it's, it's much easier to listen to them or something? Uh, I believe that it was a, a combination between um, them feeling that they were that, that they were being replaced uh, by these uh, by these machines, and also uh, and also like a, a complaint of them saying like you know like this kind of like automated uh, mass uh, music can never reach like this, uh, can re never reach like the same level of like, uh, of like uh, a live artist. Right. You're like priming the, the public from like this experience. I guess part of what's going on is that when I generate a piece of AI art, as long as I don't include in the prompt, you know, like in the style of specific artist, then in some sense, it's just drawing on the, the training data, which includes just millions of actual artists, right? The harm is like so diffuse, right? Because it's kind of affecting everyone like a tiny bit. It's like if I took a couple of pixels from your, your artwork and a couple of pixels from another person's artwork. And uh, yeah, I don't know if there's any like precedent for that kind of dynamic where the like the kind of copyright complaint is is so diffuse across so many people. I mean, the precedent that, that, that comes to mind, and this might be like a, a bit unfair, is uh, artists themselves. Like uh, you, do not, you do not learn art, art in a vacuum, right? right. What you do is like you uh, experience like lots of art from like other artists, and that informs your uh, your uh, your own style. But again, like there is like a there is like a, a substantial difference between these cases, right? Because in in this case, like uh, there is like a much more clear like attribution, right? Like yeah. you cannot prevent like an artist from learning, but you can choose to not include like a certain uh, artwork in like a training data set. Mm -hmm. And like right now, like these artists, like they have very little say into uh, how their art is is being used. Right, of course. Okay, we could talk about this forever, but I think we better we better wrap up. So this has been this has been um, fascinating. Jaime Sevilla, thank you so much for being our first ever repeat guest on on the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm very glad to be here and that uh, you consider me to not be annoying enough. <laughs> not quite. Not be including twice. That was Jaime Sevilla on trends in machine learning. 
If you find this podcast valuable in some way, one of the most effective ways to help is just to write a review wherever you're listening to this. So maybe it's Apple Podcasts or Spotify or somewhere else. You can also follow us on Twitter. We're just at Hear This Idea. And I'll also mention that we still have a feedback form on our website. I can tell you we read every submission and you'll also receive a free book for filling it out. And you can find that on our website, which is hearthisidea.com. Okay, as always, a big thanks to our producer, Jason, for editing these episodes. And thank you very much for listening.